Welcome to the uh, third access lecture, third year of an access lecture um, at uh, UNIV. Our uh, speaker this evening is Sir Martin Harris. Sir Martin is uh, director of the Office of Fair Access. He's also president of Fair <coughs> College in Cambridge. Before that, he was. Uh, Vice Chancellor at Manchester, and before that, Vice Chancellor at my own old university, um, Essex, who has been at the heart of policy making in higher education for a very large number of years, not only in uh, the areas of access and widening participation, but uh, also uh, postgraduate studies, libraries. Uh, pensions and many other dimensions of higher education. He's going to reflect on seven years as director of Offer. He tells me that he is in his eighth year of a six-year contract. Um, I'm not even sure he expected the contract to last for as long as six years. Uh, he has a house in Plymouth and at the 2005 election, um, the Conservative candidate's um, leaflet was dropped through his door where it said that of the five things the Conservative candidate would do if elected, one of them was the abolition of offer, which came to him <laughs> as something as a surprise. And you yourself may recall that quite an important part of the uh, Conservative Party's uh, election manifesto for the most recent election was again the abolition um, of, um, of offer, but uh, as you may have noticed, it hasn't happened. Uh, Ivan, what a, what, a, what a pleasure it is to be back here in, in Union, and can I start by saying how delighted I am to be invited to do this third Union Access lecture, a particular thanks to the College for inviting Barbara and me to be here, and a particular personal thanks, if I may, to Jill and Barbara on behalf of both of us. We have been friends and colleagues now for a quarter of a century, Ivor. It's a bit scary, isn't it? Uh, and uh, it's always a great pleasure for both of us to be with both of you. I might just add that my eldest son, Rob, is a Univ alumnus, and uh, it's one of Ivor's many triumphs as master of this college. <coughs> Rob was adamant, adamant that he would never, ever be a donor to <laughs> as, 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 as a college of the University of Oxford. And by various devious means, uh, I have persuaded Rob to get reconnected with the college. It's largely to do with football, as I recall, Anna. And now he is a regular donor, so I think that does count. If you knew our son Rob, you'd see that that's a pretty good try. <laughs> Many congratulations, Anna. Um, last year, of course, Baron Bacrania was the speaker, and um, he's a hard act to follow, but I'll try, I'll try and make the next 40, 44 or 40 minutes or so uh, uh, interesting. I'm only sorry Barham is not here, he was taken at the last minute somewhere else. I think there's something I ought to say. Do, do, do come across the book. Something I want to say before we start, which is that when Ivor and I planned this evening, it was on a clear, it's many, many, many months ago, it was on a clear assumption. And the assumption was that I would by now have been replaced. 
<laughs> and to that, I could therefore say out loud some of the things I've said in front of as you will all know, not least from the front page of today's Daily Telegraph, uh, uh, that matters remain unresolved. And just to be serious for a moment, you will understand that I shall say nothing at all about the process of the selection of my successor, and I won't be willing to answer questions about that outside the scope of what I want to talk about this evening. There are three main things I want to do in the next uh, few minutes. Um, of which one is more substantial than the other two. I, I want to look back very briefly, as the title of my talk implies, at the evolution of offer. As I've said, it's now nearly eight years up and running. I want to reflect on this moment of transition, because sooner or later there will be transition. And then, I think most importantly, and I think most interestingly to most of you, I want to suggest what I think really needs to be done to take forward the widening participation fair access agenda. And I'm going to try and do, say what I say, as, as free as I can make it of political rhetoric. And political rhetoric in this field tends to obfuscate and obscure the issues rather than to identify ways that might actually work, assuming you think the goals are worthwhile. And I'll try and touch on those things for most of my time this evening. Um, and I think it is worth looking back just at this moment, and as I said, that was the original intention. It's, it's, um, it's only one strand, of course, of higher education, but the widening participation fair access issue has been a major strand of higher education, really all my life, but particularly in, in the last 10 or 15 years or so. Essentially, as it's become more problematical. I mean, the, those of us who went to university in the 60s were very much part of a, a process that was always opening up from a low base, admittedly, but the, the direction of travel is clear, uh, and it's much less clear now for all sorts of complex reasons. So I want to focus a little bit on the history, but I say I do want to, to look forward mostly. So the brief look back. Um, I think you can say that since 1997, with the introduction of fees, and many of you will have forgotten phase one, but I'll just remind you very briefly. Um, when when Labour first won, two things were clear. One is that the university system was heading rapidly towards bankruptcy, and the other was that Gordon Brown, you will recall in his prudent days, made it clear that there was to be no net extra public spending for a period of time that turned out to be most of the first uh, period of Labour government. And as a result, the only way that fees could be introduced, uh, a foredoomed scheme, and I can see from your faces that most of you have already forgotten, the David Blunkett scheme, which was that you turned up with £1,000 in your hand and you had to pay £1,000 a year to be a university. It's interesting that most of you have forgotten that. Uh, a scheme that would clearly fail every conceivable test for a reasonable scheme, and it was very soon done away. It's just worth remembering that at that time there were no, there was no offer, there were no protection mechanism, none of the things that you now take for granted. Uh, and it was a, a, a short-term and ill-fated scheme. Then why did the sector support it at the time? Because it did. Uh, it supported it because it saw it as, as, as a breakthrough in principle to the idea that there should be an extra income stream from, the stu from, from, from students to, to help support universities. Uh, and although this particular scheme was inadequate and uh, inappropriate, nevertheless it created a principle on which uh, a future scheme, uh, from, from which a future scheme might move forward. 
Uh, and interestingly, at the very time that that scheme was introduced, there was a great deal of detailed work and thought going on in, in Labour Party think tanks and related activities for a scheme that would actually work, which was always seen as a second-term scheme. I can remember now, even before Labour first win, won, sitting in groups talking about how a scheme might work and how you might ensure that widening participation and fair access could be protected even while giving universities the extra income they felt was necessary. So that's over and done with. Then came the fee system which is now on the way out, the, 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 the Clark-Johnson fee scheme. Uh, and I'm going to put my cards on the table and say I think that's been strikingly successful and I'm going to try and justify that statement uh, in terms of both enabling the university sector to remain solvent and indeed to, to gain in resources, but also in not failing the one <coughs> participation test. And I'm going to talk specifically about the fair access issues in, in most of uh, the latter part of my talk. Um, but of course the critical things about this scheme, which was six years in the making where every detail had been worked out in advance, um, you might contrast that with Whatever you want to contrast it with, I promise not to be political tonight. Um, and uh, uh, it was based on the principle of loans, on grants for those of lower income, and of universities making a contribution that is by repaying to students some part of the money that they were gaining in this new fee stream through, through bursaries and so on. Critically, nothing was paid up front. Isn't it amazing how that message is still not got through? All these years later, there are still letters in the paper all the time saying, how can I pay £27,000 up front to go to university? And if there's one thing I can say on passons, for goodness sake, keep getting that message over, otherwise we really will lose students. Um, all of those things uh, came about. Why was the fee set at 3,000? Well, Tony Blair had 5,000 in mind, but one very famous vice-chancellor said he was going to charge 15,000. That frightened the horses. Everybody ran for cover, and 3,000 was the outcome. It's quite interesting what an ill-chosen phrase at the wrong moment can do, which is one reason I'm going to try and be careful at this evening. It's hard now to remember, isn't it, the absolute... <laughs> Fury there was, some real and some synthetic at the time when the Clark Johnson fees were introduced. Uh, fury on the left uh, uh, and fury from the right. And I, as the first director, was caught right in the middle of all of this. The fury on the left was probably more genuine than the fury from the right, uh, in the sense that there was a genuine belief among some Labour MPs and some others, a genuine belief that this would deter poorer students from coming to university and that this was something that had to be opposed on principle, the principle of free education right the way through, or, and or, the principle that said that it was quite unfair if poor students were deterred when less poor students, better off students were not. The fury on the right was based on, um, interestingly considering where we are now, was based on the view that this would inevitably lead to social engineering, and that's something I do want to focus on this evening. That is to say, this new tyrant, the Director of Fair Access, would impose quotas, would uh, compel universities either to admit categories of students or to admit individual students even, uh, and that there was, I say, I think a largely synthetic campaign, but very frantic at the time, 
that said that this was really the end of free, free universities as we knew them. Uh, um, I think we can now see that both of those sets of anxieties, at least up until now, have been um, unsubstantiated. Uh, indeed, I would argue that the, the scheme that was introduced has been uh, one of the reasons why widening participation in the broad sense, that is giving opportunities to school leavers and others, and it's often others these days, uh, why, why we are in a position that we are, and I do think it's ironic that one of the, as I see it, one of the triumphs of the Labour government, period of Labour government, that is this great expansion in opportunities for 18-year-olds across a very wide range of different institutions, why they are not prouder of it out loud than they have every right to be. I think that's it's rather sad in a way that, that, that there is a kind of defensiveness about this great increase in opportunities for young people from families and from backgrounds for whom higher education was simply unthinkable 20 years ago. It was a second Robbins, but without the positive notes attached to it uh, that Robbins had for reasons that you all recognise historically. Um, were, were the fees off-putting? I think you know now that fees at that level and in, with that, that set of safeguards have not been off-putting. Indeed, um, uh, widening partitions have been a really great success. And the offer was set up, as it turned out, to solve a non-existent problem. That doesn't mean offer hasn't had issues to address, but the, the, if you look at the legislation carefully, as opposed to what's happened since, offer was set up to stop two things. It was set up to stop uh, poorer students being deterred, <laughs> the bursary mechanisms and so on, and the opportunities that were given to offer to to, to lean on universities if necessary to, to, to fulfil their responsibilities. And a second issue which only the politicians could have imagined, uh, which was that universities would positively discriminate against poor students. That is to say, they'd be so, so enthusiastic to get the 3,000 that uh, based on the whole misapprehension that people would actually have to turn up with 3,000 in their hands and that people who couldn't would be turned away. In other words, a misunderstanding, a fundamental misunderstanding of the legislation and, uh, and how, in fact, universities admit students. So it was set up to, to, to solve a problem that was never going to exist. Um, there was, however, and remains one problem within what I've said to me. It's a broadly very successful period. And that is that alongside this great success in widening participation, one issue remains, has become what people now mean by fair access. It's not what the legislation meant, but it's become. Fair access has come to mean the uh, relative under-recruitment by a relatively small number of universities of students uh, from less well-off backgrounds or <coughs> from families with no higher education experience and or from schools with a poor record of encouraging young people to enter higher education. And I'm going to use the term fair access now in that sense, because that's how all the newspapers and everybody else uses it, although the office for fair access was not set up with fair access as that, as, as, a, as a principal a function. So fair access in that narrower sense has been pushed to the forefront of the agenda, particularly since it became clear that widening participation was a good news story, and I don't need to say more to you about the way the media works to know that a good news story is of no interest uh, and a bad news story 
quote, that is his relative on the performance of 10 or 15 universities in this particular area, is, is a story, and a story which um, is uh, one that's ongoing. And it's, it's partly ongoing because politicians of all parties are interested in it. Uh, it's partly been ongoing because of the enormous persistence of, of one man, a man called Peter Lample, who runs the Sutton Trust, who has consistently used his own money, very large amounts of his own money, to do research of a quality that is hard to, to argue with, that is good research, that tends to show that there is a group of young people, somewhere between three and 5,000 at any given time, who are qualified to go into a selective university and for whatever reason don't. Somewhere between three and 5,000. And that is this relatively small but important group on which the debate has focused in much of my time as the Director of Fair Access. So, and that's, I'll come back to Where are we now? Well, there was, uh, way back, seven years ago, there was a, a media frenzy of an intensity which some of you will remember. I, I remember it vividly because, of course, I was the victim of it at that time. Um, one quote that I remember very well from the editorial of a national newspaper. Uh, Is there no gutter so deep that this man will not stoop into it to pick up the Queen Shilling? <laughs> uh, you can see that that really stunned it, because I can remember it so vividly now. Uh, but that initial media frenzy, which was largely from the right, and was largely based on the fact that I intended to destroy university autonomy, uh, soon evaporated when it became clear that nobody believes more strongly in university autonomy than I do. That's always been a fundamental principle and is also enshrined in the legislation, uh, something which governments forget from time to time. They pass legislation and often forget what the legislation said. And uh, you saw that with the who will charge £9,000 debate uh, recently. So after that initial frenzy, there have been a series of relatively peaceful years. Access agreements got up and running. Uh, it was clear that there was not going to be a catastrophic fall, or indeed any fall, rather rapid expansion in the number of students coming from less well-off backgrounds. And then that went on quite peacefully. Politicians lost interest, really, until the very end of the Labour government, when, uh, as some of you will remember, rather briefly, but very energetically, Peter Mandelson became uh, Secretary of Biz, the Secretary of State in, in Biz. And he and David Lammy revived an agenda which suddenly came back into, into focus of upward social mobility. And you will remember the Alan Milburn report and so on which shows beyond per adventure, and without prejudice to anything I'm going to say in a moment, that uh, social mobility in this country has declined, that one of the, one of the relatively few ways in which people from uh, a, a less well-off background can become upwardly social, socially mobile is by entering the professions, certain key professions, and that those key professions are largely mediated through a certain number of universities, in particular the selective universities. So you've got, a, you've got a pretty clear empirical situation that, that it's harder to, to, to move up the ladder. There are still ways up, and the best way up is to get into one of the universities that most makes that uh, possible. Notice that I am not saying that it is a principle or fundamental purpose of a university to manage their affairs such that social mobility is the first goal of a university. That is something that is somewhat put in the mouths of people like me who support fair access. 
What I am saying is it is a fact that one of the consequences of becoming a student at universities of a certain kind is that it will help you to be upwardly socially mobile. Uh, and therefore it is a good thing if those students who are admitted are admitted on the fairest basis that you can imagine to do so. And I don't see any of that as remotely controversial. It seems to me that there's nobody in this room who, who would reasonably want to, to, to disagree with that. But we have these three or five thousand young people who are qualified but are either not applying or not admitted. Uh, and this is a view on which our sector is wholly divided, but until I, I would have said, in fact I wrote down here, but our politicians are wholly united. I think the events of the last week or so have shown they're not quite as united as you might say. But the, the sector is wholly divided because for most universities it is anathema to say that you have a better chance as a young person to go to some universities than to others. And I'm not going to develop that point. All I would say is that for two-thirds of vice-chancellors, it is clear that they may believe that to be true, but in institutional terms, it's not something they wish to acknowledge, least of all in public. And I understand that perfectly well, and I have never in any time as director of offer sought to undermine the, the strengths, the very real strengths, of our whole set of our, of our university institutions. But as I say, all three political parties have argued that this fair access issue, this narrower fair access issue, is absolutely central to the higher education agenda. And even today, if you look at the official spokesman of all three parties, again choosing my words carefully, they are all united in the view that it is a fundamental job of offer, and my success would offer, to address again and more successfully that question. And that's what I want to spend much of my time on now. The pressure on selective universities has grown, uh, as you all know, uh, and the question that will arise, does arise, is, is it appropriate for there to be anything more than exhortation on those universities, on university, selective universities, to, uh, to do more than they do now? I'm, I'm going to suggest a very different angle in a moment, but it would be unwise for anyone in this room not to acknowledge that this is a very real question. Uh, should there be more pressure, and if so, what form might it take? And with the predictable reactions right across the political spectrum. My view is the, the question of university autonomy trumps all those questions, and that's because I spent my life working in our sector. Uh, if, you, if you look at the factors that, that, that condition this debate, you'll see that when the coalition came into power, they appointed as the Minister for Universities somebody who, on this issue at least, is very much at the Liberal end of his party, and therefore the three-party coalition, at that level at least, continued. You had the Mandelson-Lamy view, that social mobility was very important and that selective universities were critically important in that, and that's a fact, it's not a, it's not a polemical statement, it's just a fact. You have David Willits, who passionately believes that equality of opportunity, to use an old phrase, a phrase I still like immensely, equality of opportunity is, a, is an important part of his, of his brand of, of conservatism. Uh, and, uh, of course, it was the Labour Party that introduced these policies in the first place, and, and, and they are still very supportive of that. So, so there, there is this, 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 this atmosphere 
uh, that spreads right across the, the political spectrum. Um, uh, and I think sometimes that's got forgotten uh, in the, in the uh, mishmash of reactions to the introduction of a new set of policies in terms of the £9,000 fee and so on, and, and many other things, which were introduced in a, rather quickly, and where some of the consequences are only now uh, becoming apparent. Uh, one of which was a total misreading of the powers of the director of offer to direct universities what fee they might charge, which was absolutely forbidden in the legislation. The 2004 Act gave the director enormous powers. I, I theoretically have enormous powers uh, to, for example, to stop universities charging any fee other than the statutory fee, which has been 1,000, will now be 6,000 to fine university half a million pounds for defying something I might suggest and so on and so on. Needless to say, those powers are so nuclear that they're uh, pointless even to discuss. So the whole operation is worked by persuasion, by cajolery, and by public opinion, the court of public opinion, suggesting that overt unfairness would be unacceptable. And the question is whether this covert unfairness is going on, and if so, what one might do about it. Just, um, just, just to conclude this, this retrospective look, the law uh, that uh, was proposed by Tony Blair's government uh, was very much amended in the House of Lords, very much amended, to constrain the powers of the director enormously. And uh, you, you will ponder the irony of the fact that a Labour government bill was heavily restricted by an alliance of Conservative and Liberal Demo Democrat peers. I just think you might just think how history changes in just uh, one ten-year period. And then Blair and Clark decided not to reverse those amendments here of an act which derived initially from a Labour government but was heavily amended by the Conservatives and the Dems and eventually was it more or less consensual. So the power of uh, the powers of ministers and the power of the first director were very much limited and um, we, we have had, uh, we legally in, in, a, in a period of status quo. And uh, I wanted to talk about what can be done. Why do I say status quo? Because it is my belief that the much talked about higher education bill is not likely to materialise anytime soon. Now, I mean, I'm not saying anything you haven't read yourselves in news. I don't know that any more than any of you know it, but all the signs are that the Higher Education Act is deferred indefinitely. Uh, and that therefore the new director and all of the universities will continue to operate under the powers of the act, which I went so carefully to explain that it was actually in effect a tripartisan act that was ultimately passed. But enough of history. What I want to do now for 15 minutes or so is to say I'll assume no legislative change. I'll assume that there'll be a new director working within the powers that the current act gives, and that the climate of opinion uh, is, continues to suggest that equal opportunity is something that universities must work towards, and society must work towards. And I'm going to talk mainly now about schools and what goes on in the in school sector, which probably won't surprise you, but um, it seems to surprise some politicians sometimes. Um, but just before I do that, are there other issues that we ought to be thinking about primarily from a university point of view, from a university sector point of view? 
Um, first of all, and I'm talking now about the whole sector, are the threats to widening participation in that very broad sense that I, that I believe in so strongly. And I would suggest to you there are two things, much more than the £9,000 fee, two things that might be a difficulty. One is anything that deters a 16-year-old from becoming an 18-year-old still in the is still in the higher edu- is still in the education system. And while in general I'm going to argue, and some of you are not going to agree with me, I'm going to argue in a minute that money as such is not normally the critical factor in who goes to university or where they go. I do think that the loss of the EMA may turn out to be more damaging than anything that is actually charged at 18. Uh, and uh, time will tell, but there are, there are worrying indications from some FE colleges and elsewhere about some people who might have been expected to remain in education uh, at 16 plus are not doing so, and the reason they are not doing so is, is, is financial. Uh, the, the EMA is not anything inside my remit, so I'm speaking now really as a citizen, but it does seem to me that that's an issue that, that needs to be watched very carefully, uh, because some, some uh, otherwise uh, capable young people may not even make it to 18, and therefore don't even get to the starting date of the things that is talked about so much by the political classes. And the other group who concern me are the, the obvious uncertainty of mature students. And the, the more mature they are, the, the, the more uncertain they clearly are about whether borrowing this kind of money is, the, is, 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 is a wise move. Uh, those of you who read The Observer will have seen a, a, a letter from Michael Medicroft, who many of you will remember was a Lib Dem MP for a very, very long time, setting out yet again why it, this is a, a wrong analysis. That is, people who are not very well off and think they won't be very well off after they've graduated, of course, don't have to, they, they will they get all the money and they will not have to pay it back at all if they reach 55 and not have to pay it back at all if they don't reach the income threshold. But these messages have absolutely not got through except to the school leavers. And the group where there's the least foreign applications are those who own the, the treadmill, where a school is advising people and telling them exactly what's going to happen and how to cope with it and sending them through. The more the older you are, the longer you've been out of education, the less chance there is that you're getting a true message, and the more chance there is that you're believing a message that you've heard in a garbled form that you've got to find 27,000 and, and you'll have to pay it. Um, let me make a prediction about money. Uh, I think that the precise fee that universities have chosen to charge next year, which does vary quite a lot, I predict to you that the precise fee that universities charge will turn out in retrospect to have almost no effect whatever on which students choose to go to university and which university they choose to go to. Uh, and I'll try and justify that prediction in a moment. But you can hold me to that in, in 12 months or 24 months' time. So, what can we do to address the question of these three or 5,000 students? So, to young people who are qualified, to go to university that would enhance their chances of upward social mobility, to put it as neutrally as I can. What can we do to maximise their chances? Um, uh, and, uh, I'm going to, uh, and I'm going to start by saying that we must remember that some of those young people make a very conscious and explicit decision that they don't 
want to go. I'm not talking now about irrational anxieties about money. I'm saying that they have made a positive discussion, a decision that hotel management at, at the University of Central Anglia is exactly what they want to do. It will lead them into the profession they want to do. And they may get three A's, but if, you're, if that's what you want to do, you can't do that in a Russell Group University, and you'll go to a university where you can do it. And it seems there's absolutely nothing we should be uh, uncomfortable about in that whatsoever. That is, uh, so I discount part of this group of students. Um, what, we, what I think we do know, and this, this is something that people accept intellectually and then go on to argue as though they haven't accepted it, is that there is absolutely no evidence of students going or not going to university, or going to one university rather than another. Uh, on the basis of the precise money that they are, the precise costs that they encounter at the age of 18. That's, that's counterintuitive. All of us as housekeepers or parents or whatever uh, know that there, there is money to be spent and if you spend more on one thing you have to spend less on another and so on. But that is not the way in which 18 year olds are actually making their decisions. Um, if you look back when fees started, a small number of Russell Group universities, including the university I just left, Manchester, decided it would offer really gigantic bursaries to uh, people who got three A's who were from the most deprived backgrounds. And they made no difference whatever to their applications. This is £10,000, right? £10,000 a year. You'd think, wouldn't you, if somebody wanted to go to Leeds, they'd go to Manchester instead if they were like, make any and there's evidence right across the board that students have gone on making their decisions in the time-honoured way, with one partial exception. People are more likely to stay closer to home than they did before. But remember that staying closer to home doesn't mean living at home. The press often conflate the two. And the money you save by staying at home is largely not paying train fares to go somewhere else. And that's always been a largely middle-class phenomenon. So, so just think about that. So the evidence is clear, and yet politicians think that money at 18 is the critical factor. They keep on talking about bursaries at 18 as though these are the decisive factor. The evidence is overwhelming that it isn't. Uh, Hefke did an analysis. Every single applicant to university over a three-year period, I've got all the data here, showing that there's, there's absolutely no evidence that anybody made any difference, it didn't make any difference at all on mass to people's decisions about where to go to university. And the other area who bother me is our own colleagues. And, that, and, and the more uh, selective the university is, the more there is a temptation to do this. Where there is a temptation to confuse the wholly worthwhile goal of helping a student you have admitted by giving them financial support during their time, that is, uh, support for a student who has been admitted, and then saying, this is our contribution to fair access. Can I just say that again? Of course it's a worthwhile goal, if you have the resources, to help a student who's been admitted to have a more enjoyable time while they're at the university. But that's not what fair access is about. Fair access is about getting people to apply and to be admitted who would not otherwise come. So while I, um, my own university does it just as much as this one, while that is enormously beneficial to the students who have been admitted, there's no evidence to that either. It has the slightest impact on whether young people apply in the first place and apply successfully. So post hoc financial support is great, but it isn't relevant to the matters that we're talking about today. So I'm interested in what we can do to make access wider.
Right, what can universities do and what can schools do? The one thing I think that universities can do, because I, I don't share any of the views that universities can improve yet further the fairness of their admissions processes and all, I take that to all being done. Uh, what I think universities can do, and some are already doing, is look very carefully at the nature of the data they consider at the point of, of making decisions about individuals who apply. I'm going to talk in a moment about how to get more people to apply, but assuming that people have applied for a moment, how do we make absolutely certain that we do take full account of all data that is relevant to judging that individual's um, aptitude? In other words, I'm saying that attainment is not an exact equivalent of aptitude, and that we need to be quite sure when we're considering our pool of applicants that just measured attainment is clearly a vital thing. Uh, and no student can succeed in a highly competitive university without having attained a certain level before a certain high level before they come. But there's quite clear evidence. The University of Bristol, for example, is a really detailed work that shows that if you look very carefully at the school that an individual is coming from, and schools are easier to collect data about than individual families, obviously, then there's pretty clear evidence, pretty clear evidence, clear, clear enough to me anyway, that says that you can, you can make offers that vary slightly from school to school to candidates who you otherwise deem to be of equivalent admissibility by, by the criteria that, that you use. So I do think contextual data is worth looking at, and I personally would hope that really detailed information about schools could be made more generally available so we don't have every university reinventing the wheel, doing a great deal of work with hundreds of schools so that they know more about that school than is in the immediately available public data. So I think contextual data is something that is worth looking at. Uh, and, and universities have a, have a real role there, I think, to, to, to demonstrate that they are taking all those things into account. The Bristol data, by the way, shows that uh, that you can make an offer two grades lower uh, to, to, to young people from certain schools and the average performance at, the, at graduation, they've been running it long enough to have a full sample, is the same. Uh, but of course it needs very, very, very careful work to identify what schools you will treat in that way. And interestingly, back to autonomy, all that happens at Bristol is this information is flagged up to the person who's doing the decision making, uh, and that's all. The admission admitting officer continues to exercise his personal and professional, his or her personal and professional judgment in taking individual candidates, and that's right. But as you all have gathered, it seems to me that the major issues lie now in schools. If we are really seriously interested in fairer access, then what we have to recognise is that getting young people to want to come to universities in general and to want to come to selective universities, that is the minority who will achieve the levels appropriate for that, then we have got to understand that the decisions that matter are made much earlier in young people's lives than at 18. And it doesn't surprise me, it may surprise some of you, that, uh, that inducements of a financial kind at 18 are most unlikely to change life decisions that you have made about yourself, consciously or otherwise, uh, and, and, and never immutably, I don't for a moment believe in predetermination or anything like that, but in general, uh, the, 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 what you might aspire to. And this is where I think the outreach activities are, are so important. 
Um, there, are, there, are, there are three things that clearly militate against a young person of ability who's gone to a, 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 a relatively poor school or comes from a family with uh, no HE background and so on. There are three things in, above all that make it much less likely that such a young person will come into the pool of applications that you eventually uh, consider. One is the one that everybody knows, and that is attainment. That is to say, if you get poor A-level grades, that is straightway uh, a deterrent to a selective university uh, taking a risk. And it's not really fair for the young person if, if a risk is taken that is too great, because the worst thing of all is admission and then rejection. I mean, that, is a, that is a terrible, terrible outcome. And I've, I've talked about the way in which um, uh, uh, the uh, contextual data can allow that to be mitigated to some extent. But the critical thing where universities really can help is by, uh, um, is by assisting the raising of standards of a small number of individuals, I'll come back to that, in, in, in 11 to 16 schools. And that's what's difficult for us. That's really what is difficult for us. Because almost all the young people we're talking about do not go to 11 to 18 schools, the kind many of us went to 40 or 50 years ago. They go to schools at 11 and they change to another school at 6. They go to an FE college. But many critical decisions would have been reached in that earlier school. So we need to, act, we need to reach out in ways that I'll talk about in a moment uh, to try to increase attainment. But we also need to be sure that um, schools and pupils in schools, and to some extent parents, are critically aware that the curricular choices you make at 14 and at 16, but for 14 is so often overlooked, will absolutely have a major effect on the kinds of degree courses and therefore the kinds of universities you're likely to be able to do when you're 18 or 19. Uh, the two examples that are always quoted, and they're both right, uh, one is quoted more than the other, but um, I'll mention both. One is that if you have very limited opportunities to study science at 14, 14 plus for your GCSE, that will not inexorably, but very substantially reduce your chances of access for doing certain A-levels and therefore for access to a whole range of high status, high upward social mobility uh, degree programs. So courses, what you do at 14 is fundamental. What independent advice and guidance do you get at 14? And the answer is in many 11 to 16 schools, what is going to happen to you when you're 18 is simply not on the agenda. I'm sorry to say that, but that's a fact and it's well attested. Then again at 16, you move to FE College, uh, and again an FE College will be dealing with young people from 10, 20, 30 feeder schools. Uh, there is a critical moment where those young people who could become applicants to universities that are very selective need really good advice and guidance to get them onto the right program with the right transition arrangements. Uh, and uh, so, so curriculum and independent advice and guidance about that curriculum are something that needs to be borne in mind. And the third thing, which is less tangible but is very real, is about aspiration. You know, can it, can it be for me? Is this something that I can reasonably aspire to? Um, I think back, it's always bad to reminisce, but I, I think back to a, a situation in which um, my own university career was determined by a school that simply said uh, to all of us, this is what you will do, you will go here, you will do this, I'll sign here, get out. Um, called choice, I think. <laughs> but I mean, to, to be serious for a moment, unless you get advice and guidance that you have the capability, you might be able to, you ought to be aspiring to, 
and, and if your parents, because they themselves have no experience of HD are not able to do this, the school becomes even more critical. Uh, some people, of course, get both. Wonderful parents, wonderful school. Uh, but some get neither, and those are the ones that I think universities have a role in assisting to make the decisions that they need. So one thing I want to say now, and I've nearly come to the end, is that that's where there is a key role for universities and colleges through their outreach activities. And that's why programs like College Ambassadors, that I know this college takes so seriously, and schools liaison offices, the, and above all young people full of youth and enthusiasm, because anybody over the age of 25 is, is not likely to convince this 14-year-old or 16-year-old to... To, 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 to modify their proposed course of action. Uh, I'm sorry to say that. Uh, I think men my age going and doing speech days doesn't have any effect on anybody whatsoever. Um, but all of those things, and I know many of you in this college take that very seriously, every evidence that that is the way in which you can change the attitudes and aspirations of a small number of young people. But just to say something which is often forgotten, these three or five, three to four or five thousand young people, they're in tiny numbers, they're in penny packets. That is, they're in schools, they're in 11 to 16 schools, where there may only be two or three boys, girls a year who have a reasonable chance of going on to a very selective university. That is all the more reason for finding them, not all the more reason for saying it's too difficult and we can't do it. And uh, I think it's obviously a general societal problem, but I do think universities have a role in working with schools through, through outreach programs in any other way on academic and pastoral care. And it does require one particular thing. And this is perhaps the most controversial thing I'm going to say all evening. And that is that the schools have to work with universities to identify the young people who deserve help. Now, why is that controversial? It's controversial because in many schools, that is not a thing that schools are willing to do. Because if, you, if, you, if you're a small 11 to 16 school, we say 90 young people a year, and there are two or three of them who, who might well, given the right encouragement, given the right curricular choices and so on and so on, get into these pool, then 87 won't. And I don't need to say more to, to, to explain the right reasoning behind that. I was uh, talking with head teachers a couple of years ago when we did this report, and one teacher said to me, I, I have one or at most two young people a year, this is 11 to 16 school, who might eventually be candidates for medical school. And I have 88 or not. And it's not possible for me to run a curriculum for those two. Uh, the only way to deal with those two is to give them twilight teaching, give them Saturday teaching. It's very difficult to move young people to a different school for all kinds of complex social reasons, so I'm not going to go down that road. But there are but to do that, you have to be willing to identify them, and that's where universities in their outreach activities, in my view, is that is the one way we can really help to change the way forward. So we need to know not at 11, mass selection at 11 has gone forever, whether some of the older ones here regret that or not. The fact is it's gone forever, it's never going to come back, and it wouldn't help. It would create other problems at least as great. But by 14, we need to know those young people who, given the right curriculum, given the right encouragement, perhaps given the right financial support from 16 to 18, the EMA or some replacement for it, given all those things, can enter their FE college doing the right A-levels, and with every chance of moving forward. There are those 
who would go a bit further than that and say, not only should we identify them at 14, but they should be given a guaranteed offer of a place five years hence if they achieve certain clear goals. Now, that's difficult. It's difficult for any real university. And now, of course, the young people change their mind immensely in the five years between 14 and 18 plus. Nevertheless, it's that... It's that setting of a goal and helping young people to reach the goal that will, I get, will persuade some of these three, four, five thousand young people to uh, become plausible candidates for, that seems to be what Fair Access is about, plausible candidates for the most selective universities. Universities therefore have to work with teachers. If I were, if I were a, a, a politician, an omnipotent politician in this field now, what I would be saying is not let's fiddle around again with incentives and pressures at 18, but let's really work together, universities working with schools, with teachers, to get the pool of young people increased and to move them into a, 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 a ladder that will lead some of them into the applications pool that universities like this then have to, uh, um, have to, to choose between. Uh, and that is the way of re-establishing uh, social mobility. I want to end with a, a, a broad social comment, which um, some of you won't agree with, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, and it's this, that there, there has been a profound social, well, many profound social changes, but, but one that is very striking to me looking at the end of my career now, looking back, is that in the 50s and 60s, there was a very substantial upward social mobility. And if you now, with the benefit of historical, with a bit of hindsight, look back, it's because there was a rapid expansion in the number of jobs in all those professions that had, that gave the upward social mobility that many of my generation benefited from so much. That is, there were more doctors, there were more lawyers, there were more accounts, there were more university teachers. Uh, I learned um, quite late in my career that the year I became a university teacher, 1967, was the year that it was easier than any other year before or since to become Now, if you reach a point where, for whatever reason, expansion of middle class opportunities comes to a, I would say, a halt, or nearly a halt, so it very much slows down, then you have a much greater sense of competition between those, who, those families who, who are already in those professions and who have sons and daughters on the one hand, and those who might be the first generation to come through uh, in, into these opportunities. And, 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 and parents are extraordinarily good, as we all would be and are, and I do the same with my own grandchildren, looking at ways of maximising their chances and opportunities. But what it does mean, and you can see it in the language that's been used just in the last week, in certain um, newspapers, that it does mean that success for some now is seen as not success for others in a way that simply wasn't true in the 50s and 60s. And I would say to you that that is nevertheless a goal that to which we must uh, for, on which we must focus. It is right that young people succeed on merit, and not just be, not just because their parents succeeded on their merits. And I do think that universities have a key role working with schools to bring that about. Thank you very much.